typically, you know, from my perspective, I want to create enough opportunity that there's opportunity for everyone across the group and not have it just be one operating business because that's part of generational resiliency, diversifying our wealth in different geographies, different, different industries, different ways of making money, but also providing lots of opportunity for the kids to explore their passions, skill sets, because there is lots of things going on. You know, there could be someone that wants to manage the wealth in the family office. I see this a lot. Often one time, there'll be a very financially or numbers astute child that, that gravitates towards managing money, managing investments, managing the family office. And then there'll be someone that's maybe, you know, naturally has the gravitas and is a natural leader and, and is better aligned to succession. And that plays out quite a bit as well. Uh, in the event that you really do have a clash and a competition for the top job, same thing. Policies are in place before need, external recruitment, other votes from wider family members, and um, the, those decisions are binding. Hey guys, welcome back to the Fort Podcast. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. And if you've enjoyed this show, I would be super grateful if you would follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you listen to. And if on Apple, it would mean a lot if you'd leave a rating and review. Last but not least, you can find all these episodes on YouTube. Thank you so much again for joining me and enjoy the show. And this episode is brought to you by Fort Capital. At their core, Fort Capital is a privately owned real estate investment firm, but beyond that, they are committed to technology and a world-class culture, which leads to a very forward-thinking mentality. Do you want to stay in the know on all things Fort Capital? Be sure to follow Fort Capital on LinkedIn and sign up for the quarterly newsletter on www.fortcapitallp.com. Fort Capital's quarterly newsletter subscribers are the first to receive business and real estate insights, news, videos, podcasts, free resources, and more. Mike Boyd, welcome to the show. Excited uh, to do this. Thank you, Chris. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm glad we could finally do it. I think it's tomorrow where you're at. Um, he's from Australia. We're all here in the States, but I think it's tomorrow. How's tomorrow going? Right, tomorrow is fantastic. I have to <laughs> tell you, the future is bright. You're going to love it. <laughs> <laughs> that is the perfect way to start this conversation. Let's set the stage with um, just a little bit about your background. You're a very accomplished entrepreneur and businessman. Um, we'll talk a little bit about that. But we're going to talk a lot about where uh, you've focused a lot of your energy in, in recent years, which I find fascinating around um, multi-generational wealth and, and businesses. But before we get into all that, let's talk about you for a bit. What, what um, kind of got you into business? And let's talk about your business background. Yeah, well, thanks for the opportunity. I, I guess I would describe myself as uh, always being an entrepreneur. My story didn't start with a lemonade stand, but instead started selling lost golf balls that I had fished out of the creek at the age of, I think it was 11. And, uh, you know, progressing from there, I was the kid that couldn't help himself with starting multiple businesses during high school. And then, you know, really struggling to attend university because I was too busy getting some, <laughs> some real world street smarts, trying to, uh, you know, outsmart the professors doing real world business. So, you know, a little bit of a rebellious streak, but also just lots of failures, lots of attempts, lots of business building. And, um, you know, most of them were great lessons. A couple of them clicked and we had had some great fun. So, you know, I guess to give you a couple of highlights, I remember when I was 
uh, 14. I had my parents driving me around to doctor's offices and other sort of professional waiting rooms because I was cleaning their aquariums with my little startup business called Fishy Fitness, which was <laughs> lots of fun, right? <laughs> so uh, I, you probably just lost a bunch of listeners there. I'm sorry, but uh, you know, that was uh, that was an absolute disaster. I couldn't get myself around. I'm asking my mum to drive me around, you know, carrying my bucket and fishnets and, and chemicals and things like that. But you know, it was one of these opportunities to follow something I was interested and passionate about at the time, knew a fair bit about, and I thought I could quit my job at the local pet shop after school and instead take the clients and service them privately uh, with my little business. So, you know, that lasted a few months and, and learned some lessons. But we progressed into, uh, you know, when I went through university, uh, ended up running a, a reasonably successful and a lot of fun, a, a keg hire business which you know might sound a little odd to to all of your listeners in the states but here in Australia it wasn't common to have a keg party in college you know it's not something that you could do easily and so after seeing it in you know the great american movies i thought that's exactly what i want for my 18th in australia you can drink at 18 so that's sort of the big coming of age party where everyone uh, drinks a lot and has a great party and i tried to hire a keg uh, and the equipment to dispense it for my 18th and failed. And I was so frustrated that I, I set about trying to solve this problem. I thought, if I've got this problem, other people have to have it too. <laughs> so long story short, I, I you know, begged, borrowed, and stealed and, and got a loan from dad. I think it was $5,000 with the promise that I wouldn't quit my part-time job because he knew I was going to fail and he wanted to get his money back. <laughs> and uh, I used those few thousand dollars to order in some equipment from the US, uh, the dispensing gear ultimately did some deals with the local um, you know, pubs and clubs and things and, and ended up making a heap of cash, having a lot of fun through university days. We just exclusively did beer kegs for 18th and 21st birthday parties, ran it for the, the whole time I was in uni and, and then sold it to a mate and moved on to digital ventures. So it's been a wild ride. I love it. And let's talk for just a second. You have, you've lived in Singapore, I believe. Um, You've kind of lived internationally, obviously well-traveled internationally. What brought you out of Australia and have you done business outside of your home country? Yeah, absolutely. So quite a global citizen and that's something that I work uh, actively for. I, I love uh, being worldly and well-traveled. The thing that originally uh, had me traveling quite a bit was one of the companies that I still own and run today. So we're sort of going to do a bit of a story arc here and, and accelerate to present day where I run um, a group of digital companies. And one yeah. of those companies is a, uh, a large car rental comparison website called Vroom Vroom Vroom. So in the Southern Hemisphere, we're the largest at what we do. We work with the big guys like Hertz, Avis, Budget, Enterprise. We compare prices and availability and people book through us. We're an online travel agency. And um, naturally being in the travel industry, your partners, clients, customers, and even employees are dotted all around the world. So I had the opportunity to travel uh, to some incredible places around the world. I was getting into uh, the UK and Europe sort of three or four times a year. I was getting into the US usually two to three times a year and all across Asia, um, Asia Pacific still being our biggest market. But over the last eight years, I've spent time living uh, in the Philippines, in Hong Kong, and in Singapore and uh, just recently returned home to Australia with my young family. And, you know, it's been, it's been a remarkable experience. I love to learn from other cultures and different ways of doing business around the world. 
All right. So we're going to we're going to actually drill down on this for a bit. So you have cleaned fish tanks, you've provided kegs, you've compared rental car services and now are a travel agency. Uh, one theme I'm kind of picking up on is you truly are an entrepreneur's entrepreneur. You see an opportunity, you start a business it, it, and, and, you know, chronologically, the, the previous business kind of had nothing to do with the next one. How did you get into that current business, Vroom, Vroom, Vroom? And then I actually want to talk about what you're seeing in the world today from the data that you see, how people are traveling. But let's start with how did you get into this one? And this seems like a really big company. Yeah, look, this is um, quite an established company. It's been around 21 years. We're a market leader. You know, we do wow. good volume, make good money. Um, but the the way I got into it was actually, you know, if I go back to the keg hire story, and I'll, I'll skip a couple of steps, but connect the dots for you. Um, the way we actually built that party hire company was exclusively through uh, SEO and social media. And And if we're going back sort of 12, 15 years, that was very new, very cutting edge, very different. But to us, you know, growing up as digital natives, it just made perfect sense. If we wanted to connect with other 17 and 18-year-olds that were planning parties for their birthday, we found them on Facebook, you know, and we'd just transitioned off MySpace. And, you know, Twitter was was a very fledgling thing. And so we we were very uh, attuned to, to, to uh, guerrilla marketing. You know, every time we'd host a party, one of the things that we would do as a freebie was offer to send a photographer to the party for an hour and take some great photos of the party, then we would post them on Facebook with our watermarked logo. So everyone that was at the party got tagged in the photos on Facebook, that spread across the network, and everyone knew the name of our company who provided the kegs and the, you know, we did frozen daiquiri machines and things like that as well. So, you know, it just spread and we never spent a cent on advertising. The other thing that we did when I was first, um, you know, borrowed that money to order the equipment in and, and I was still speculating as to whether or not there was a business here, I started trying to teach myself to build a little uh, HTML website, and I had built half of a website. I owned, uh, you know, kegheircitynamecom and went off on my first overseas backpacking holiday as I was eighteen. Right, I just missed out. I hadn't had a keg party. I was all upset. I went overseas before starting university, and I started getting all these random emails when I checked in at, at an internet cafe. And there was people saying, hey, can I get a keg this weekend? How much is a keg? Can I rent a keg? And it was just so bizarre. And quickly figured out that uh, our half-built webpage, which was still an idea, ranked number one in Google for keg hire city name. And so we were getting all of this free inquiry. There genuinely was a market, uh, as I thought there had been. And so when I got back from my holiday, we sort of hit the accelerator and, and built out that business and proceeded to have a lot of fun. So that exposed me to the power of digital marketing, digital media. Uh, and then ultimately, I, I formed a nonprofit group that was for entrepreneurs because I was struggling to find my tribe, my, my group of people. The, the, the group that I went to school and university with didn't really get me, you know, mm -hmm. as I was, I was a weird entrepreneur type. And <laughs> so I started a monthly meetup for other entrepreneurs to sort of self-select and find people like me. And and from that meetup, I ultimately met someone that was involved in this vroom, vroom, vroom business and uh, later uh, was asked to get involved and, and sort of help them turn it around. And, and you know, that was 11 years ago and I've since bought them out of the business and run it today with, uh, with one other family. That is so interesting. This is the most American thing I can say about your uh, keg for hire business. But do you remember that YouTube video of the Australian party kid 
that had like dyed hair and the glasses and he was a viral yeah. sensation. Did yes, you provide was, yeah. the keg for that party? <laughs> I wish. <laughs> okay. I wish. <laughs> Johnny, you got to look it up. It's probably it's probably past your time, but um and anyway. Bright, bright yellow sunglasses on or something and refused to take them off when he was interviewed the next day when the uh the police had shut down his party. Oh, I love it. I I've I've seen that video so many times. <laughs> This is just interesting. So your Vroom 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 is uh, it's a travel agency. It's it's comparing car rentals. You you kind of through that probably get data that are leading indicators on the pulse of the world. You mind sharing just what's going on? What are you seeing? Are people? Is it ramping up? Is it flat? I don't. I'm not very versed in that side of the world, except for what I hear over here. What's going on over there? Yeah, look, it's a great question, Chris. We do get some leading indicators, and it's funny because the data has actually flipped in terms of the order of events. And what I mean by that is because we're a travel agency that just focuses on ground transportation, right? We do cars, um, motorhomes, RVs, car parking. We do insurance, but it's all ground transport. We're not doing airfares. We're not doing hotels. What typically happens is we're an afterthought. If someone's booking a holiday, they often book their flights first, their hotel second, and then maybe think of a car rental much closer to the date. Potentially, they book a package with a travel agency with everything rolled all into one at the beginning. But we've always been an afterthought. What's happened now is because there's a global shortage uh, with the supply chain issues, there's a global shortage of cars, and most car rental companies defleeted quite significantly throughout the pandemic, uh, there are not enough cars. And so you know, at the time that we're recording this, Prices for cars are incredibly, incredibly high, uh, the highest they've ever been. Supply is severely constrained. And we've found that people are starting to book their car rental first and lock that in and then contemplate hotels and flights to backfill the trip. And so that's been a really, really interesting thing that's really flipped our data model on its head. Um, but to speak more generally about what we're seeing in terms of people getting out there again, it's been an incredibly difficult two years, as you mm. can imagine. Uh, when people can't travel because borders are closed, there is just literally nothing you can do operationally uh, as a travel business except sort of shut down, um, hibernate, and rethink the business model and 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 try and keep your best people engaged while waiting for things to open up. And that's what we've done. Uh, it's what we've done successfully. We ended up absorbing a couple of competitors and things throughout the pandemic that didn't have the balance sheet to ride it through. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, adversity always creates opportunity. Uh, but now we're seeing the pent up demand. So yeah. people are, are coming out and they're really keen to travel, whether that's domestically or internationally. Uh, they've got savings, there's plenty of cash. Uh, they're balking at, to some extent at the high prices, but they're still spending because yeah. they've missed out for a couple of years on the holiday. They want to they spend on it now. Um, but our biggest challenge is supply. We would be making a lot more money and a lot more volume in terms of bookings had we have more cars available at the moment. And I really think that's going to be a constraint, you know, well into 2023, possibly 24. It's quite a, a widespread shock. Interesting. Super interesting. Is is that is that business Australian based? Yes, it is. And 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 again, a little bit off topic, but um did Australia provide like a PPP program like they did in America, some type of government assistance for businesses to kind of carry through the pandemic? Yes, but not to the same extent. Yep. So, um, you know, I have to give credit. There was some of that. 
it certainly helped more businesses than others. For our business, because we're global and have such a global footprint of employees, yep. it was only available to our Australian employees, of course. Yeah. And we had a lot of remote workforce contractors. We have a back office in Manila. Uh, we have employees in Europe and the States that work remotely for us there to cover time zones and things like that. And there was no help whatsoever for that because those employees tended to fall into a category where uh, they were either working for a multinational, so they didn't qualify for something locally in the States, or um, you know the Australians qualified for something, but it was a small slither of what our global workforce looked like. And so you know, we got a, a small benefit, but it wasn't anything significant. We only we only got through based on our balance sheet. Yeah. Well, kudos to you, man. Uh, it's it's Thank a you. big pat on the back to all the entrepreneurs out there that have made it through the last couple of years. And like you said, there's opportunity. And I think I think we can all say we're all better off for having gone through it. Wouldn't have wanted to go through Absolutely. it, but we've learned lessons that I don't think we ever thought we'd learn. Absolutely. All right. Hope it's behind us. Yeah. Um, <laughs> The thing that, you know, has really captivated me about what you've done and um, you have made uh, a, a, a business, a podcast, kind of a brand called The Business of Family. Let's just start. Will you just describe what that is and what it means to you and what you're trying to get out of it? Look, you can interpret The Business of Family lots of ways, but one way I love to talk about it is this sort of, if you imagine a, a continuum and on one side, you've got family businesses and on the other side, you've got business families. I love to focus on the business families. Mm. What does it take to build a family that borrows some of the intellect, organization, culture, values from some of the best businesses in the world in order to organize and, and build amazing family relationships, build generational assets together and have a lot of fun. So I love to explore the business of family where I, I spend a lot of time interviewing business families who typically have an interest in or are already living a generational aspect of their family. It could in some instances be a single family business that's been around for three generations or for me, more interestingly, because I'm an entrepreneur and I've got a lot of interests and a portfolio of companies that I own and operate, I love exploring business families that might have more than one operating company, then set up a family office, uh, have an annual family retreat, might uh, organize themselves around a family constitution or charter, uh, sit down together and discuss what their family's vision is and their values. Uh, it's bringing governance to the family which is, I think, a topic that's not often discussed. Um, it, there's, there's something that you can go very deep on for those that are in the space. You can really go deep if you get interested in this space. But it's also something that not a lot of people uh, understand or even aware of. And I guess the, the final point I'll make on it is the reason why that I find it incredibly fascinating is because you know, most in the audience will have heard a similar proverb to shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations which effectively means the first generation makes it, the second generation um, builds it, expands it, maintains it, and usually by the third generation, they lose it. Mm. And there's all sorts of sort of stories and reasons why. But shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations is observed all around the world. It's not a US thing. It's not an Australian thing. It's not an Asian thing. In fact, in China, they say rice paddies to rice paddies in three generations. You know, The Irish say potatoes, all sorts of different adages around the world. And uh, 
the rule holds true is partly because founders are wired one way. You know, founding generation, you come to the country with $5 in your pocket and you have to make something out of adversity and you build, build, build. And then the second generation grows up uh, modeling the first generation. They see some of the hard work. They probably grew up with not much. And then maybe as they came into adult uh, age or, or later adult age, they ended up becoming wealthy because the first generation built something that over their lifetimes generated some wealth. Second generation saw some hard work and then ultimately enjoyed the spoils of that. The third generation, the grandkids came along, they didn't see any of the hard work necessarily. They just grew up in relative abundance compared to the first and second gen. They don't have the value system or understanding necessarily in order to maintain that wealth, manage that wealth, stick together with their relationships and bonds. And usually by the fourth generation, it's the wealth is lost, dissipated, and the fourth generation starts again. That's the shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves. So I love studying this and finding the exceptions to the rule. Mm. There oh. are families out there who fight against these statistics, and the statistics are extreme, extreme. 30% successfully passed to the second gen, something like 3 or 4% successfully passed to the third gen, and those that successfully passed to the fourth generation and beyond are a rounding error. So I love to study those extreme exceptions to that rule to understand how people ultimately perpetuate their businesses, their wealth, and their relationships. You just set the stage for an amazing conversation that we're about to have. <laughs> um, before we dive into it, man, that was so great. Thank you for that. Um, why? Are you interested in this? Is this something that spawned from your family? Is it something you wish you had in your family? Like, how does this become the thing that you're going to pour a lot of time into? Look, it's a great question. As an entrepreneur, I've always been wired for the long term. So I didn't realize it at the time. But if I sort of go back thinking about my experience over the last couple of decades, I've always adopted naturally uh, family business style values. And what are they? They tend to be um, building enduring. Uh, enduring ventures, having employees that work with us and and stay with us sometimes for a decade or more, uh, being strong contributors to our community, in effect being a pillar. We're not here to build a company that's here for a year or two and quickly flip it through private equity or VC and move on. We're not trying to shoot the lights out and be a rocket ship or a unicorn or anything like that. We're trying to build something that's stable, sustainable, and going to be here for the very long term. That is just purely my value system. I've always been wired that way. I love to, you know, as Naval would say, play long-term games with long-term people. I love mm. that phrase. He sort of articulates it better than anyone. And so I set out to, to try and solve for this because I admired the families who had done it. You read the biographies, um, you read the books, or you see people in your community. And I, it was always stood out to me when you met adult children or young adult children of very successful business families who seem to have it together, right? Yeah. Down under, we say, holy, they seem to have their shit together. Yeah. I hope I can say that on your podcast. <laughs> you can say right? that. Because, because it's the exception, right? You, you expect to see uh, spoiled kids, spoiled brats, right? The money's ruined them. That's, that's the typical adage we see in the media. It's what's amplified. Wealth spoils. Well, in fact, wealth can also amplify. It can amplify the good, the positive, and you can have incredible impact. And I'm not just talking about people that get rich and give it all the way through philanthropy. I think it's incredible that families can build wealth, build stronger relationships with each other, and get to the third or fourth generation and be a 
learning organization that is ultimately contributing to society for centuries and really heavily investing in what we call the human capital, the next generation. They're doing things with intention. So we can dive into all the detail you like, but you know these families don't get to the fourth generation by accident. They have to fight these statistics using governance practices and doing things very intentionally. They set up education funds for the, the grandkids and the great-grandkids. They create mentorship opportunities through their business network. They uh, gather around family meetings and teach some of the value systems and storytelling from the elders. It's all very, very intentional. So to get back to your question as to why I'm uh, passionate and excited about this is because I want to do that. Yeah. I'm a founder and first generation. I do not come from a uh, what, what I would consider a multi-generational wealthy family but I hope to be the founding generation of one. And you know, I have uh, young kids, I think similar age to yours, Chris. And so it's quite unusual for me to be in a position where I'm deep into this topic uh, and exploring this myself, but I've actually been exploring this area for a good part of 15 years, laying the foundation for my family enterprise, recording our history, recording our values, documenting our family meetings to do this with intention so that effectively we're leaving breadcrumbs for the next generation to follow. Oh, man. All right. Here we go. So <laughs> it, it's fair to say, I think the dumbest question I could maybe ask of the day is in order to do this successfully, and let's let's kind of pretend that this conversation is about beating the statistics and getting to the call it the fourth generation and beyond, even though even getting to the third generation really is beating the odds in, in everything that you've learned. None of this can really happen by accident. Is it fair to say that everybody that you've successfully that you've seen successfully accomplish this has done it with a lot of purpose, effort, just like they've put into their business, they've put into their family? Or have you seen any outliers where it just kind of magically happened and nobody knew how it happened? It's a great question. Uh, the short answer is it's possible to stumble into the third generation by yep. accident. Yep. It's very rare to see anything beyond that. Uh, anything beyond that is very intentional. And usually by the time you see a third generation family who got there by accident, there has been some sort of uh, pruning event, which whether intentional or otherwise has increased the odds of them getting that far. And here's what I mean by that. The first generation uh, passed to the second generation. And instead of the second generation being four siblings, it was one. And so it passed through one set of hands and the third generation then inherited it. That makes it a whole lot easier. Whereas if you have a first generation and your second generation is say six adult children, there's a lot more people to divide the wealth between a lot more people that have to get along to unite around a, a single vision in order to perpetuate the wealth. And so it does depend a little bit on family dynamics and how big the family is, but usually by the third generation, there's enough cousins, there's enough grandkids that there's a reason why things fall apart at that level. You know, the statistics aren't just statistics. There is actually a reason why things break. And that reason typically is because the family grows, grows faster than the business. The family grows faster than the business. So if you imagine a family tree diagram, mm -hmm. you start with a, a founding set of parents. They have four adult children. Those four adult children each have two children each, mm -hmm. right? So we're now at eight grandchildren. By the time you get to that level, you've got four distinct adult children families with their own children. You've got four 
spouses who have married in, male or female. You've got a different set of value system. They're all probably living different ways. If everyone thinks of their brother or sister uh, in the audience now and, and appreciates the differences between yourself and your brothers and sisters, and then imagine trying to get four of you to get along around one united vision, do that to, to the third generation, and then imagine what happens when you get to the fourth generation. You've now got eight grandchildren who all potentially uh, marry or partner and then have between two and four kids each. The family grows faster than the business. And so if you start with just one pot of wealth, one source of wealth, maybe it's a single family business or maybe a single family investment, by the time you get to the third generation, there are too many mouths to feed. Mm -hmm. So even though you started wealthy in the first generation, by the time you divide it by uh, eight grandchildren and four adults, you've got 12 people there. By the time you divide it into 12 pieces, no one's wealthy anymore. Maybe they've had their college paid for and that's about it. Yep. And so we talk about families being transported into wealth or transported out of wealth. And by definition, because families grow so quickly, unless you're uh, topping that up, unless you're encouraging entrepreneurship and, and raising great kids and teaching values and, and trying to keep some of that wealth together rather than dividing it in pieces, then the natural law sh just simply shows that over time, the wealth erodes unless you intentionally work to keep it together. I, I kind of put myself in your camp in the founder family, so we'll spend some time there. Uh, but before I dive back into that, if 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 at the third generation things kind of die, is it fair to say that there is chance in the fourth generation for a new kind of rebirth of the founder to arrive? Or how long does it take for the founder generation to show back up in the family, if at all? So absolutely, yes. And the founder generation can show up at any time. But typically we say um, shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations because you have to start rebuilding in the fourth generation. It doesn't mean that families necessarily do, but I have seen examples where someone who would otherwise be fourth or fifth generation today uh, speaks to me about how they lost the family legacy. They lost the legacy wealth because there was breakdown relationships in uh, the third generation they got relatively little or absolutely nothing, but they saw some of it play out and they're determined to do things differently. And instead, as a fourth generation member, they now see themselves as a founder and they're setting out to sort of create an, an initial pot of capital again, if we're using financial terms. So it does happen um, and it happens quite often, but it doesn't necessarily mean they have to show up in the fourth generation. You might go multiple generations before a founder shows up again. Yep. And and it's fair to say, and I think you already said it, but I'm just repeating, obviously, the less people involved in the family, the greater the odds of a successful continue of transfer. And that's just by way of numbers, by way of emotions, you have more characters involved. But we can kind of set the stage with, regardless of how great your business is and how great your family is, the more people that you reproduce in the family, the odds continue to stack against you no matter how great things are. Kind of. Okay. So there again, yeah, this is a really great question. I'll try not to get you know, too complex too Go. quickly here, but there is, again, it's a continuum. And, and on two ends of the continuum is where it's important and where you can be successful. The middle bit is where it all gets lost. So you described one end of that. And one end of that is where there is fewer family members involved, fewer relationships to manage, fewer things can go wrong. Therefore, the task is perhaps a little bit easier. 
And I mentioned the word pruning earlier. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some families perpetuate their wealth successfully into the third and fourth generation because they pruned the family tree. And I don't mean that, you know, in an aggressive way, (laughs) but just as a, as an example, uh, they pruned the family tree by one branch buying out the other, or, you know, unfortunately one sibling passed away or one sibling was, um, not capable or otherwise. And so that happens quite a bit as well. Families that say get to the second generation, there's three children, uh, two of them don't work in the business. They've got professional or academic careers. They they have their own life and they're very happy. And there's one child who, um, you know, has grown up working in the business with mum and dad or, uh, you know, effectively being the mentee. They've worked in it for 20 years and they're the natural successor. There's all sorts of friction that happens in that environment because the other two adults, uh, siblings who aren't involved in the business might have an equal share in the inheritance, right? They might have 30, 33% each, and then there's someone in it that's actually running it day to day, and they've also got 33. And so what often happens there, um, either they clash, can't get along and it falls apart and the wealth is lost, or the the person that's running the business raises outside capital and buys out the two siblings who aren't involved and continues to perpetuate the legacy by pruning the tree back to a single family. And if that happens in the third generation, it almost resets the clock and they get to the fourth. And then they, you know, the the challenge is how do you hold on to it in the fifth? That's one end of the continuum. Okay. I'll give you 30 seconds on the other end. Go as long as you want. More complex. Okay. The the other end of the spectrum is when you have very large family enterprises, and I'm talking a hundred plus members, sometimes five hundred plus members. You're multi-generational. The family tree has grown enormously and you've managed to keep it together for generations, usually because there's great governance in place and you've done it intentionally. When you get to that level, you've effectively jumped the gap and you have such a sophisticated structure in place that the family enterprise, and I use this sort of umbrella term family enterprise, which might incorporate uh, a group of operating businesses, investments, a family office, a family council, all sorts of things like that. Family enterprise is now so large and so well managed, it's a, a run by a family council, which is like a board of directors, that it's actually easier to some extent to operate at that level with 100 plus family members because it operates more like a well-run public company than a small private company where we're trying to get along with two or three other people. It's, it's moving away from individual egos, individual agendas, and instead saying, we are now stewards of what we have uh, built in prior generations. We're looking after this temporarily, trying to improve it and pass it on in better shape to the next generation. So the hard work is in the middle and getting from one end of the spectrum to the other. And on that end of the spectrum where it's starting to run almost like a true business, like you said, where there's not really egos and it's 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 for the the, the mission, of you, if you will, of the family, is it usually the family still making the decisions or have they put some type of third party or some other non-biased party, maybe not is in charge of everything, but is involved in helping kind of run that organization or is it usually still within the family? Look, when you get to that size, you've always got advisors and professionals and coaches and things like that that have helped you learn the mechanisms. But yeah. typically these family enterprises are still very much family run uh, or family stewarded. And so what that looks like from a governance perspective is the family um, usually stack the board. I've seen one example where it was um, nearly 100% independent director 
governed with with one family chairman. That was very unusual and also very successful. But most of them, you will see, uh, like I interviewed a, a family recently on the podcast. They were a US family, seventh generation, incredible story. And they have 500, 500 individual family shareholders and participants yeah. in their family enterprise. We talk about the family tree growing faster than the enterprise, 500 people, right? So they have a family council, which as I said, is like a board of directors and people are elected to that family council and serve terms much like you would as a director. And so there is a governance process, there is a constitution, there's a set of values, there's a strategy document, but it's all planning for the family. And that family council sets out what's the vision that we're aiming for, how are we going to achieve it over the next three to five, which is a business term, but really what they're actually planning is how we're going to achieve it over the next 30 to 50 to 100 years. And that's the other key distinction in, in these family enterprises, the very long-term nature in planning. So, you know, it's, it's fascinating to see at the more sophisticated end, how these families operate, how they elect their family council members, and how it's no longer about individual ownership or inheritance. Instead, it's a collective effort to try and keep the assets and the family together and steward it in good shape to the next gen. All right. Kind of going back to the other end of the spectrum, um, let's spend just a little bit of time on on uh, clashing. You know, you, you kind of mentioned one where, you know, uh, let's just pretend there's that situation. Maybe there's three kids, two aren't going to work in the business, one's the clear successor. And there's one scenario where he went and raised capital or she went and raised capital and, and bought out the other two. What are the mechanisms that you've seen work or not work when a clash happens? That's a great question. So getting into family dynamics and trying to understand the relationships at play, uh, you know, the term is if you've met one family business or one family enterprise, <laughs> then you have met one family enterprise. They are all <laughs> unique. Yeah. So you can you can bring all of the rules and experience that you like and then you walk into a room and you see siblings fighting and it's based on, you know, something that happened in their teen years that they're still resentful about and good luck on doing that. And so it's hard work. It's hard work, which is why, you know, the sort of jump a step here, starting in the founding generation or the second generation putting this sort of philosophy in place makes it a whole lot easier because if the third gen doesn't have an expectation to inherit and that 33% is theirs, then you avoid that argument in the first place. Instead, it's a conversation about what are we going to do rather than what am I going to do? Yeah. So what works? Um, pruning the family tree, as I said before, buying one out. Um, if siblings really can't get along, some uh, will just stay the course, and many do uh, to their detriment. They stay the course and say, well, I don't want to give up the legacy that I've inherited from uh, my parents or my grandparents, I really need to keep this business alive, but they've got all of this family infighting and, and relationship trouble. They can't get along. They're really resentful that they're making all this money for their non-participating shareholders. They're not on the board. They don't take any risk. They don't make any decisions. They're not working the hours. And this one individual is. And so sometimes that goes on for years until it finally blows up. What often happens is that um, the the health of the business or the enterprise, the underlying investment suffers, right? Because it becomes a giant distraction, as you can imagine. Why would I want to invest as much as I possibly can in this when, you know, 66% of it is owned by my siblings who couldn't care less? Yeah. And so sometimes you see siblings uh, intentionally nosedive uh, the enterprise and takes a turn for the worse and say, well, you know, if I can't do this the way I want, I'm going to destroy it for everyone. 
Um, other times that wealth gets destroyed anyway, just because they're distracted and mismanaging. Um, and then you also see uh, succession, you know, when succession is in a bind, that's when you also see exits, right? So that's where we say, look, we can't get along. We can't agree how to steward the wealth, uh, steward the wealth in the asset that we have currently. Let's liquidate everything. Yeah. And that's probably what happens more often. And that's where, you know, you, you see that most often in the third generation. First generation founded it. They had skills, knowledge, networks, understanding. Second generation saw some of that growing up sometimes and at least had an appreciation for what it took to build it. Third generation gets it and they're perhaps a little bit befuddled and say, one, I don't want to work as hard as grandpa did, or I don't know how to, or the world has changed and it's no longer relevant. Just give me my share yeah. and I'm going to go and have my own life and, and do my own thing. I value the legacy, but I want to live my own thing, which is perfectly okay as well. And that's why most wealth gets divided up in the third gen if it's not lost beforehand. Is it fair to say from first to second gen that the intention to move the asset, let's call it the operating business down the lineage, is that usually coming from the founder hoping that it goes to the second or is it coming from the second hoping that the that the first will give it to them? You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's normally always the founder uh, wanting to see their legacy continue, wanting to see their life's work continue. And the the issues arise when the second gen says, hey, look, this is cool and all, but I want to live my own life. Yeah. And so, you know, so sometimes you have that and you'll have a clash. Uh, other times um, you will have someone who says, there's a great opportunity. I grew up working in the business. I love it. I, you know, I learned everything from dad and now he won't let go. Yeah. He won't get out of the way. He's 82 years old and won't get out of the way. You know, succession time was 12 years ago. He needs to retire. He needs to slow down. His health's not great. Like this plays out countless, countless times. And so the second gen often wrestles for control. And it's the second gen that reaches out for help in most circumstances, if it's not for the matriarch of the family. So when you talk and, and, you know, please forgive me, I'm, I'm speaking in vast generalizations, right? Because as I said, every family is unique. But you do see this play out quite often that the second gen reaches out to some sort of advisor or specialist in the field, or they start researching family governance or multi-generational wealth because they say, look, someone else has made it to the fifth generation. I'm only second. Dad won't let go. Let me pick up a book and try and figure out how to do this stuff. What, what conversation do I have with him? How do I broach this topic? How do we talk about succession? Um, and so we see the second gen show up most often. We also see uh, matriarchs typically could be the patriarch, but ma matriarchs typically who tend to be the glue in a family enterprise hate to see the, um, the clash between the founding gen and the second gen, or hate to see the clash between different members of the second generation because they're not getting along. And how do we get these siblings? And so oftentimes the matriarch will reach out and say, how do we keep the family together? Yep. You know, the, fa the business is important. The wealth is important, but how do we keep the family together? And that's where they come into this process as well. How many kids do you have? Two. Okay. Well, well I have two. I'm, I have a third, but let's just assume we're talking, let's just say two, three kid family. What are the things, actually, I don't even think this question, it really matters, but I'm speaking more to you and what you've learned. What are best practices for first generations families to do if their hope and desire is to 
obviously raise great kids that are functioning members of society, but but more than that, that want to take over the business and actually do it really well. You know, one of the biggest parenting tips I've gotten over time is like, don't force things on your kids. The more things you force on them, the more they actually probably won't want them. You have to like let them want in. So let's, you've talked to some of the greatest families across the globe. What are the key things that you've picked up on that would say, if parents do this, the odds that their kids can not only take over the business, but be successful with it. These parents have done this for those kids. Great question. There's about 15 answers I could give you. So let me (laughs) try and pick two. Um, The challenge is, you know, to answer specifically about my situation, uh, I came into you know, considerable wealth or relative wealth for my circumstances in my 20s, building technology companies. Mm-hmm. And I was transported from one world to another, from, from you know, average middle class to, wow, I'm wealthy, what do I do? And uh, that was just before I started having kids and then ultimately had kids. And so I felt the pressure and the panic of uh, all I've ever heard is raising great kids, you know, wealth spoils them. You, you yeah. see the rich kids, the bad stories in the media and everything else because it gets clicks. And so I set out to try and research how to not do that. And then, of course, you hear all the stories about family businesses where it's an expectation that the next generation takes over. And, of course, I've interviewed uh, families from all around the world, Asia, Latin America, Europe, and the US, and you see that in different cultures more so. You know, There's still an expectation in some cultures that the eldest son inherits everything and will perpetuate the legacy and has mm. no choice. That person doesn't decide their life. The patriarch has already decided it. And, you know, so I've researched lots and lots of different families, but you asked specifically about what can founders do. And I think all I can offer you is my perspective. Yep. And my perspective and, and desire for my family is not to force anything on my kids, but instead to provide them with outsized learning opportunities and lots of love. Because what I, what I most want to avoid is the wealth amplifying negatives and blowing up the family. I would much prefer to have family relationships intact than the wealth. If I can pull off both, then that is a great success. So from my family enterprise perspective, you'll remember at the very beginning of the conversation, I said, I like to focus on business families rather than family business. So rather than focusing on one single operating asset, which has an expectation that the next gen will pick up, I like to think of it in terms of a collection of values, assets, vision, understanding, learning, intellectual property, networks. There's so many intangibles that are valuable as well. And you can think of this in business terms or family terms. So for my kids, they will grow up with plenty of opportunity to get exposure to lots of different industries. Because as an entrepreneur, I have investments in lots of different industries and have built businesses in different parts of the world. But they will have access to an incredible network of friends, colleagues, partners around the world where they can mentor, they can go on summer camps and stay in Switzerland and learn about chocolate making because we have a family over there that we're friends with. That's a great thing to do when you're 11, you know, and they're going to ski amazing slopes around the world. They're going to learn languages. They're going to sit and eat, um, you know, great hot pot in hawker centers in Asia because we spent time there. I want to expose them to these things. And from a family enterprise perspective, yes, there's wealth. Yes, there's a family office. Yes, there's operating businesses. But when it comes to the enterprise, it's more about who are we as a family? What are the collective assets that we are stewarding to the next generation? And how do we do that? 
And that's where you get into the, the all-important how. So a big part of family governance is, is similar to business. You often start with um, a guiding vision from the founding generation, which you know I have one for my family. Uh, we have family value system, which is important for parents too, because we often have a set of values that we want to teach our kids anyway. Now let's be intentional about it and write it down. So in the founding generation, the value system and the vision was discussed and decided upon between my wife and I. As the kids get older, it may evolve because they'll have an opinion and perspective too, and we might update it. And as the, as the kids get to an age-appropriate level, they start getting involved in the family meetings. So typically when you get into a sophisticated governance structure, a family will get together for an annual retreat, often called a family assembly once a year, and they'll often go off-site. It's like a corporate retreat, but instead, you know, we as a family, we go skiing somewhere interesting in the world, and then we host our family meeting. And we'll reflect on the year, and we'll talk about our goals and, and what we achieved and what didn't go well, what we want to improve. But also, we have a look at all of the forms of capital and assets in the family and discuss those. One of the key parts of this uh, that I talk about on my podcast and some of the people I've interviewed uh, is this concept of the five capitals. So there's a, an amazing author who wrote a book called Family Wealth. I recommend it to everyone it's by a guy called Jay Hughes Jr. And Jay, uh, Jay's about 80 years old now. He's sort of the grandfather of this space. And he really revolutionized the ways of thinking around family capital. And he divided it into five capitals. So oftentimes when we talk about um, generational wealth and families of wealth, we only think of the money. But when families get really intentional about stewarding their assets, their wealth, their capital to the next generation, there's five capitals. Human capital, intellectual capital, social capital, spiritual capital, financial capital. And as a family, we model all of those. Every time we have a meeting, we review the five capitals. We talk about what's important to us, how we invest in each of them. To give you a really quick example, uh, celebrating the human capital could be the birth of a new a new baby. It could be someone that's joined the family, or it could be uh, a new spouse that's married into the family because we're now a bit bigger and you know that we're onto the third generation and we're welcoming the new human capital in, into the family. Intellectual capital is how we actually uh, building this family enterprise into a learning organization, much like we might do in a corporate setting. How are we educating the next generation? Are we setting aside an education fund to send the kids through great schools and colleges? Are we doing the same thing for the grandchildren, the great-grandchildren? How are we stewarding that financial capital to help invest in our intellectual capital of the next generation? Um, the spiritual capital, from a faith perspective, it varies around the world. It's, it's a combination of culture, faith, religion, but also oftentimes the, the family has a spirit, a unique fabric of its own that comes from its storytelling from the elders as well. Uh, social capital could be philanthropy, could be the networks, could be the contribution to community and society and, and how families are, are held together. And you know, financial capital takes the form of a family office or a collection of investments or operating assets. And so actually putting frameworks around these things is what helps families operate with intention and do this quite successfully. When is the best time? Uh, and again, I know I'm asking you questions that the answer is you know, lots of things, but when's the best time to start telling, you know, we'll keep talking about you. You became wealthy in your twenties. You're not much older than I am. I don't know if you are older than I, I think you're a little bit older than I am. I'm 35. How old are you? 35. Okay. Boom, baby. Eight, 1987. <laughs> what a great year. I was 87. What Were you 87? Year. 
Yeah, I was. Okay. I was. And I'm living in the future, remember, Chris? So and your day. I know. It's, it's still bright. The future is still <laughs> bright. Um, and the past yep. still looks good from from back here. Just just letting you know. Your kids are pretty young. So yep. when is the right time to start telling your children that you're wealthy and that there's actually that you have money? I think I've seen it handled lots of ways where people are really transparent I've seen it in ways where they're not very transparent, but the vibe and the culture is that we're wealthy and you know we're wealthy, but you don't know how much. In all of your findings, is there a, is there a right time or age to start telling your children, you know, there, there is a pool of money that's growing that's, that's larger than most? And then we'll talk about, once you answer that, what happens after you disclose that to them? Yeah, so um, I err towards transparency, and of course it's different in different cultures, but I err towards transparency because if you're running this model of, of operating as stewards rather than inheritors, uh, it doesn't really matter how big the, the uh, bank account is or the size of the assets because part of the message of being a steward is this is not yours. This is yours to take care of. You have a great responsibility. One day you will need to steward this to your kids and grandkids. And so it completely shifts the conversation. Rather than saying, yes, we're wealthy, we're wealthier than most, and I'm not sure whether or not I broached this conversation with you when you're 10 or 20 or 30 or if ever, and and uh, one day you're going to inherit a chunk of it and you're going to be wealthy. You sort of remove all expectations around that and entitlement around that because the entitlement is what destroys kids of wealth. Yep. So instead you involve them as early as possible in operating and contributing to the family enterprise. You, you invite the kids to the family meeting. You give them projects and tasks and roles to play. You know, one of the, the best ones I see, there's often a, a coming of age ritual when kids are you know, somewhere between the age of 11 and 14, where they start to join family meetings and have age appropriate conversations. There's going to be a lot of things that go over their head, but the kids are often tasked with planning the annual vacation, managing the budget, understanding how many people we, we have to get from one place to another, um, how many days we can go for, how many airfares that is, et cetera. And it becomes a great learning tool. You're teaching the values of the family. You're teaching um, great skills and life skills. And we often try and pair, I say we, but you know this is sort of a, a framework, the grandparents with the rising generation to do those projects together. You skip a generation. It's amazing to get grandparents together with the young kids to embark on some of these projects or to plan some of the activities that we're going to do when we get together for the annual family retreat. And so kids start taking responsibility to deliver great experiences, to manage money within budget, um, to build all sorts of great things for the family enterprise. And so by the time they ultimately come of age as, as young adults, they know that they may ultimately be a director or a family council member or a steward of some kind in the future uh, when there is succession at the board level. But it's not a conversation about saying, well, uh, my brothers and sisters and I are going to divide this up when the ultimate happens and uh, go our separate ways. So it's really an intentional decision to say, we'd like to keep this together. No one really owns it. We're putting the wealth into a um, an entity, whether it's a a trust or a family office, or even just in principle, we're saying we're, we're stewarding this for the next generation rather than dividing it up. The other thing I'll say, Chris, just really quickly on raising great kids, 
Um, when I first embarked on learning about all of this uh, in my 20s, um, I was really concerned that my kids naturally were going to grow up around a whole lot more wealth and abundance and opportunity than I did. And I didn't have a bad upbringing uh, in the slightest. I came from a wonderful um, middle-class family and, and had lots of experiences. But by definition, we're wealthy. And there's things that I want to do in my life uh, and my kids have to come with me, right? Because they're young kids. And so I don't want to not live my own life with fear that I'm going to spoil my kids. And how do you reconcile these things? And so, mm. you know, one of the greatest conversations I had on this topic was with a guy called Jim Shields, who talks about, in part, how to raise great kids and this concept of 18 summers. And so as a family, we've adopted that as one of our value system, 18 summers. You only get 18 summers with your kids before they go off to college or they're young adults and they start their own life. At most, 18 summers. When you think about it in, in that context, and then you think about how old your kids already are, you go, wow, I've already missed some or I've, I've only got a few left. What am I going to do to make these amazing? And so we've sort of architected our life in a way where we work very, very hard during the, uh, the school term. And then on the holidays, we try and spend a, a, a great deal of time with our kids and also create amazing experiences. If there's only 18 summers, how are you going to remember them? And as I said earlier in the conversation where you know, we, we aspire to be global citizens, we love to travel. So we try and expose our kids to incredible travel experiences and cultures around the world with our wealth. So we're not hiding the wealth, we're not trying to, to pretend it's not there, but instead we're trying to give them worldly experience rather than stuff. So that could be a safari in Africa, it could be you know, hiking in Cambodia, it could be skiing Aspen, it could be exploring you know, the ancient parts of Europe. But when the kids go on those adventures, they, they learn 10 words of the language. They understand the different currencies. They're given a little budget to manage and they have to buy their ice cream with that local currency and say hello and please and thank you to the people that they're dealing with in Spanish or some other language. And so it just becomes a, a way of operating as a family, creating amazing experiences rather than stuff. I want to be part of your family. Can I be your kid? <laughs> <laughs> Come uh, and join us. <laughs> <laughs> How old are your kids? My kids are six and three. So here's an interesting question. If you're the founding family, and and, and I'm in a very... We're very, very similar. Um, my folks were middle class, great upbringing. Um, there were times we were poorer than others, but overall, um, you know, it, I was not poor growing up. Do you include your parents as part of the family meeting or does it start with you since you're resetting the culture? That's such a good question. Um, it depends. In our circumstances, we haven't. Okay. Um, not because it's impossible to do so, but it's very difficult. Okay. Um, part of the story that I lived as being an entrepreneur and not coming from a business family was that I clashed with my parents quite a bit as a young adult when I went to university. You know, I told the fun story about running the party hire company, but really it, it stressed my parents out. I, I wanted to drop out of uni you know, every other day. They wanted me to stay there because, you know, a, a good quality education is everything. And my parents, um, you know, wonderful, loved them to bits, but they were operating from their value system that they had inherited 
which was a legacy in itself. You know, it. my my grandfather was um, adamant that his children and grandchildren would get an opportunity to be educated. That didn't work out so much, but my father inherited that, and all he ever wanted was to ensure that his uh, sons, my brother and I, uh, achieved a tertiary education. Right? That was his every. That was his goal in life. It was so important to to he and mum that that was their culture. That was they've done an amazing job stewarding the next generation. If I use my own language that if they can get their kids through and well-educated and tertiary education, because they didn't have necessarily the same opportunities. But he then was from the generation where he, he got himself an education and then got a good safe government job and worked in it for 45 years. And there was times, many, many times throughout those 45 years when he was miserable. You know, I remember it growing up. Dad did not like going to work. He was not inspired and on fire and passionate about it. In his last sort of Five to ten years, he found some, you know, a new role and some passion, and and came alive and loved it, which was wonderful to see. But you know, to me, I I didn't understand it. I was wired like an entrepreneur. I was saying, you know, if if you don't love it, go and do something else. Go and create something. Go and build something. And of course, I had to, in a sense, rebel away from family to go and build my story. Mm. And then after I achieved some success and de-risked myself and my own family, now we have a much stronger relationship and understanding between us. Because really what they were just saying is, we're worried about you. We yeah. don't want you to fail. We don't want you, to, you know, we want you to get a good education and a great job. Or as I said, I never want to work for anyone. That doesn't make sense to me. I'm put on this earth to build stuff. And so because of that uh, difference in value system and, and the amount of growth I've gone on to sort of move away from and build new things, in, including values and understanding, we've chosen not to include the prior gen in our enterprise. For us, the founding generation is us and starts from here, sort of a, a fresh line in the sand. But what we do do, final comment on this, is we share some of the incredible storytelling and, and examples from prior generations with our kids now. Right? So we document where we came from. We're not saying that we're rejecting everything prior to us, not at all. We're saying this is what we've learned from, this is what we've come through. These are the trials and tribulations that your elders have been through. And this is what's brought us the circumstances that we have today. Fascinating. And to be fair, if 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 I had been your parent and you started Fishy Fitness, I might have been worried that you would be a failure too. <laughs> I'm, I'm totally kidding. You know what? You know I'm they, kidding. They still have absolutely no idea what I do, but I seem to do it well. So um, you know, we just we just choose not to understand each other sometimes and um, enjoy the grandkids together. It really is so scary how similar some of our stories are. I was very rebellious in high school. I left I left high school a year early to go to college because I wanted to get out of the house and be my own person. Um, yep. And and looking back on it, it, you can reflect on it as just a misunderstanding of you know them trying to be a parent and me thinking it was just a misunderstanding of values, not in a bad way, not that theirs were bad and mine were right, but just different. Um, so it's it's interesting to hear that. Um, okay, to to wrap up the topic on just like kids in the second generation, and I think we've we've covered a lot of it. But if you want to guarantee that the second generation is not going to be set up for success, is is the answer that you treat those kids as entitled kids that are they were born on third base and 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 they are going to live a life that just because they were born they hit the lottery is that how you damage it or are there other ways to screw it up unintentionally <laughs> i love it i love it 
Um, there's so many ways to screw it up, Chris. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, look, if you treat the kids as entitled because they are entitled, then the behavior follows that. So when the kids, uh, you know, uh, cry that they need the new toy or the new thing or the new whatever, and they take that into school, high school environments, and they constantly want to peacock, right? They want to be the biggest, the best, the flashiest. Um, and it might be that they got a uh, a cell phone before someone else or they got an iPad or they got something else and constantly they're showing off how they're better because they've always been told that they're better. That they're, I'm on third base. I'm a princess. I'm a prince. I've always been taken care of. Daddy, granddaddy, grandma, they always look after me. I get what I want if I cry. And of course, you know, if that's the way you behave, if that's the way you parent, you're going to raise kids that are entitled and have expectation and have absolutely no idea how to strive or achieve things on their own. Yep. And so you know, all of the research around wealth and raising great kids is really not about the wealth. You can raise kids, great kids, um, amid uh, enormous amounts of wealth. It's whether or not you're there as a parent, right? There are wealthy families out there that made all of their wealth in the absence of parenting. Their, their, their kids are uh, raised exclusively by the help, and there's nothing wrong with having help, but it raised exclusively by the help. They get to uh, to a young adult age. They've never had the value system or the experiences passed down, and then wonder why their kids didn't turn out the way they wanted them to. I think it's wealth is an amplifier, as we said earlier. It can amplify the good or the bad. So, what do you want to teach? Yep. And I think the earlier you start to teach those lessons, the better. I think the best way to teach it is with experiences, and uh, that doesn't mean shying away from wealth. But I I would err towards transparency. Um, helping to understand that there is wealth and then engaging the kids on conversation to say, well, what do we do with it? This is our financial capital, but what about our impact? What about our social capital? What about our, our human capital? What's important to us spiritually? Where are we going to invest this financial capital to the, to the benefit of the next generation and beyond? That's a better question, I think. Yep. Okay. Again, I'm just going to keep peppering you. Um, these are it's just amazing. It. Have you seen it? And, and we kind of discussed this, but let's just say you got two, three, four kids. Three of them are great. And one of them is just a total pill. Just, you know, not productive in society. Maybe, you know, on drugs. Who knows what it is? But just really not following the course. How have you seen families handle that? It's not even about who's going to succeed the business, but to kind of build that plan when you have such an outlier that can, can, can in a lot of cases, gobble up all the attention in the family. What do great family business, the business of family, what do they do with folks like that in the family? Do they care for them more and love them more? Do they let them fail and hit their head and hopefully come back? Like what, how did, how is that designed? Look, another great question. And you're talking about two things here. One is the family's human capital. The other part of it I see is generational resiliency. How do we not have the black sheep or the, or the, and it's not always a black sheep, but how do we not have the difficult circumstances bring down the rest of the family legacy that we're trying to create? So in the first part, let me address it from the positive. There's oftentimes where there is uh, an inheritor or a next generation member who is incapable of being a um, a participant in the family enterprise, it could be because they've gone off on gone off the rails. They're 
on drugs, they're in jail otherwise, or it could be because um, they aren't intellectually capable, they might be physically disabled, they might be intellectually disabled, there might be other reasons that um, they can't fully participate. And that happens in just about every family. It's mm -hmm. not rare, uh, particularly as families grow quickly. Um, I think the family then comes together to decide, well, what are we going to do to support that person? Remembering that wealth amplifies. So if you've got um, a negative where someone maybe has grown up with abundant wealth, entitlement, whatever, and has gone off and used that wealth for drugs and other things because they can't find their purpose in life, because they have other pains in their life, um, cutting off the wealth is usually a good, good first move. We, don't, we, we want to cut off the amplifier. Again, I'm not qualified to speak on this topic. I'm only speaking from experience of talking to families who yep. have struggled to manage it. This is this stuff is not easy. But typically, uh, if you're in an environment where you're talking about stewardship, those people are not on the family council because they can't contribute to to the extent and they're not elected to the family council. Usually it's the wider family group, the, the wider shareholders, the entire family tree that votes on who's going to represent us and and steward us from a council perspective. So those people typically don't make it there anyway, which helps. Um, for those that need a bit of extra help and support, um, when we're talking about how we're going to invest in and support the human capital of the next generation, families often set aside a pool of capital and specifically set up a trust or a similar structure just to meet the future needs of that adult who perhaps needs um, support or in-home care or similar for the rest of their lives. And so rather than waiting until uh, the founders pass away and the second generation says, okay, there's four siblings, but one isn't uh, fully able, uh, how are we going to divide up the wealth? Instead, you're better off making that decision while everyone's still around. The founding generation says, right, we're going to set aside this pool of financial capital into a trust to take care of their future needs. And they don't necessarily participate in further inheritance because the remaining three siblings aren't really inheriting either. They're on the council, they're stewarding it, they're going to pass it to their, their grandkids. It's more about making sure that the care is taken care of, whether it's healthcare or, or otherwise. And we see the same things in education. So a lot of families will dictate an education policy um, and what that means, what they'll pay for and what they won't. I want to talk really quickly about generational resiliency because you talked about what happens when these things go wrong. Another great example is uh, what happens when divorce or separation takes place? So we've got you know great wealth at the founding generation, second generation there's four adult children, and one of those children goes through a divorce after 20 years. No one saw it coming, but it happens, and it happens all the time. How do we protect the family's capital, the family enterprise, when that one uh, marital issue takes place? And how do we protect the estate? And so. A lot of families that govern intentionally to protect these five capitals that I talked about before also have a lot of policies in place before they ever need them. Um, one is who is a family member? So if a spouse marries into a family enterprise, are they considered a family member? Do they get to vote? Do they get to inherit? Do they have uh, those sorts of rights to participate? Are they allowed to participate on the family council? Uh, does it, is it bloodline descendants or otherwise? Um, and then also protective policies. What happens when something goes wrong? So, you know, I've spoken to some families who have a, um, a, a trigger that takes place where families actually sign an agreement, and I'm talking about adult married children here, sign an agreement that says, if 
I or my spouse moves out of the marital home for more than two nights in a row for any reason, you know, because we're having an argument or otherwise, I must immediately resign from the family council, the enterprise directorships of any operating companies and distance myself from the family's wealth because there is enormous risk. And of course, different laws, different parts of the world, but the whole mechanism is designed as protective. How do we protect the family's legacy? How do we protect the family's capital and keep it together while supporting this one uh, child or child plus spouse working through their issues? And so having insurance policies in place, protective policies in place, funds set aside for healthcare, education, all those things is part of a family planning for generations. And that also means planning for when things go wrong and ensuring that you survive those hits. That's incredible. How important okay. is it that the, whether it's the founding, let's just, again, we're, we're, we've kind of spent this conversation on founding and second generation. Maybe we'll do one next year on second to third and get more into the, the weeds sure. there. But how important is it that the founding patriarch and matriarch are aligned and love each other? And are, is it even possible to um, do this if the two people at the top aren't even in cahoots? It's very challenging if they're not. It's very challenging to build a family enterprise if the two people at the top are not aligned. What usually takes place is it either falls apart or you build an enterprise, not a family enterprise. Yeah. So, you know, if, if you've got a patriarch uh, who's the founder and uh, the matriarch's not involved or not on board or don't get along, um, one way to think of that is that the founding generation has already been pruned. You know, we talked about pruning the family tree branches and things like that. If there's only one person passing the wealth down, it doesn't really help much because it was usually only one group to begin with in the founding generation. But oftentimes it does segment the next generation who picks sides and that can cause a great deal of damage. What often happens in that, in that space is that the wealth is liquidated and it's divided up because, you know, if you've had a separation in the founding generation, Yep. And there's an enormous amount of wealth passed down to the next generation, but you know half the camp sides with mum and half the side uh, sides with dad. Um, there is very little way to bring even the next generation together, unless it's a, a small miracle, to want to govern and, and keep it together the same way. Okay. All right, we're going to spend the last segment on uh, it is now time to put your, your kids or let's say they're getting out of college and uh we're gonna kind of break it up into two ways and now they're they are interested in the business um everything that you've done as a parent up to that point has worked what are the best practices for starting to introduce them into the business whereas we know if your kids were trying to join vroom vroom right now with 200 employees and they're all of a sudden all those employees are all of a sudden going well you know we thought we might be CEO one day, but that dream's over. At the same time, you don't want your kids to enter. They're going to already be kind of, you know, they're going to have a little bit on their back, right? They're, they're Mike's son the or daughter. Zone. How yep. do we get them in the business? What are the best practices? And, and is that letting the company know ahead of time, I'm running in a business that there is a chance that this happens? Do you let the company know that early or do you not so that maybe it never happens and you shouldn't have said anything to begin with? I know I just asked a lot there, but I think you know where I'm headed. 
Yeah. So in the final point, surprise is the enemy, right? So we avoid yep. surprise at all costs. That's in the operating company. It's also in the family. Okay. Um, the real answer, and that I've seen this uh, played out in most very large family enterprises, is kids graduate from college. It's been successful so far. They're well aligned. They may have an interest in participating in the enterprise somehow. It could, could be one operating business. We'll use that example. Best thing to do is say no. Turn them away. Because... The family has an existing policy that they put in place before need. Remember, we talked about this before. We've already defined who is a family member, what are they entitled to, what do they get to do. We've talked about what happens if someone gets separated or divorced. We also have a policy about who is a family member and who gets the right to work in a family business or to work mm -hmm. in an operating business that the family stewards. And under what circumstances do they get that right? Is it automatically entitled? Do they graduate college, come in, and they're immediately you know, COO and, and pushing the prior generation out the door? No. Typically, the, the policy around who gets to work in the business is very strict, very structured, and in place ahead of need before someone reaches that age. The policy usually states um, you're not allowed to apply for a role in the family business until you've had at least five or 10 years of outside experience working for other people. Uh, one or two of those years must be experienced overseas. And only to that extent can you then come back and apply for an open position at the family business if it is open. And the, process, the recruitment process will either be run by a third-party recruitment firm with no bias, or it will be run by a member of the, a branch of the family who are your uncles, aunts, or cousins, and you will be interviewed through that process and your parents not allowed to be involved. And if you beat out the market in terms of third parties for that role, and you're the most qualified and most experienced and best person for the role, then you're welcome to work for the family business. I think I know what your answer to this is going to be. I think you might've just answered it. But if, if let's say both of your kids are very interested to come work for you, does it happen often where in the family and again, different cultures, different religions, like you mentioned, or, you know, in one culture, it's the the, the oldest son and, and his life is kind of predetermined. But in a situation yeah. where that's not the case and you have multiple kids that, that feel qualified um, and maybe both of them want the top spot one day. Have you seen tactics that work there? And is it what you just said, where it's a it's run very with a non-biased third party. What happens when there's multiple kids that, that want a piece of the action and maybe each other's action? Look, I, I think you should aspire to build something big enough so that multiple kids can have a piece of the action, but they're different pieces. Um, I've seen a lot of families that have developed four or five operating businesses and decided that they want one child to head up each rather than competing for the same one. So they give them a different division or a different geography or a different whatever. Um, of course, different kids have different skill sets and interests. So it, it would be rare that you have uh, two siblings who are equally qualified for the job. It doesn't mean that uh, two or three don't think that they're entitled. You know, if we we're watching Succession on TV and and we think you know everyone wants the top job, well, not everyone is, has equal experience and and the capability. But when that happens, typically, you know, from my perspective, I want to create enough opportunity that there's opportunity for everyone across the group and not have it just be one operating business because that's part of generational resiliency, diversifying our wealth in different geographies, different um, uh, different industries, different ways of making money, um, but also providing lots of opportunity for the kids to explore their passion skill sets uh, because there is lots of things going on. 
You know, there could be someone that wants to manage the wealth in the family office to see this a lot. Often one time there'll be a very financially or numbers astute child that, that gravitates towards managing money, managing investments, managing the family office. And then there'll be someone that's maybe, um, you know, naturally uh, has the gravitas and is a natural leader and, and is better aligned to succession. And, uh, and that plays out quite a bit as well. Uh, in the event that you really do have a clash and a competition for the top job, same thing. Policies are in place before need, external recruitment, um, other votes from wider family members, and um, th those decisions are binding. This has been an incredible conversation. I'll, I'll end it on this um, question, but what all this sounds amazing and people can listen to your podcast, but if people, if they've made it to this point and now they're interested in going, I really want to set something up and, and I don't quite know how to do it. Is this just something you Google? Like what, what would be your recommendation for how people could go about a healthy process to set this up for their family? Look, I, I like the question because it's exactly the question that I asked myself. Right? I was a founding generation. I made wealth in my 20s and I looked around for role models and examples and I couldn't find them. Uh, it's not that they weren't there, but they weren't in my immediate network and my realm and how do I find this? And so part of the reason why the business of family exists is because I set out to create the, the content and the conversations which I was looking for and couldn't find. Yep. Um, so you know, not to plug my thing, but I created that to fill a need that I couldn't find myself. Since then, I've connected with some wonderful advisors and authors of books uh, and others. And I mentioned earlier the Jay Hughes book, Family Wealth. I think it's a great book. It's been around for, for decades. The principles are um, timeless. And learning about the concept of these five capitals, learning about the concept of stewardship, I think is a great place to start. Because really what we're talking about here isn't rocket science. Anyone can or any family can choose to do it, but you do need to put in work and you need to do it with intention. This doesn't happen by luck. So you know, definitely find some resources, seek out some role models that have done it before, and then get ready to actually do the work. And this suits business people and entrepreneurs quite well because we use a lot of the same frameworks in family governance as we do corporate governance. Yeah. We talk about the concept of a board. We talk about the concept of separating ownership and control. We talk about shared decision-making. We talk about having a vision statement and a set of core values and operating within them. We talk about hiring the best talent, reinvesting for growth, um, protecting our risks. How do we become an enduring enterprise or an enduring family? How do we tell our stories from you know years gone by to the next generation or the next set of employees that are coming into the enterprise? How do we keep that spirit alive? These are all the same concepts applied to family. And you know, I talk about it as a founder, but I've interviewed families that are 14 generations old and you just go, wow, how do they do that? So it's not that there aren't role models in the world. You can find them if you're looking for them. And I think it's a wonderful place to start. This has been incredible. If people want to find you and see the work that you've done, how can people get in touch? Look for the Business of Family podcast on, on your favorite player or the businessoffamily.net. Uh, or find me on Twitter at Mike Boyd. I'd love to uh, connect with people in the audience. And, you know, I often get some great questions thrown at me and it's always a challenge to try and respond in a 140 or 280 <laughs> characters. And I, I love the brevity of Twitter, but it's a bit challenging sometimes. 
Well, if Elon Musk has his way, maybe it'll become 480 characters. Who knows? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Who knows? By the time this is published, it might be a completely different circumstance. Yeah. Mike, thanks so much. This was incredible. Absolutely. My pleasure, Chris. Thanks again for having me. You bet. Everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please follow the show on Apple, Spotify, or subscribe on YouTube. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and chairman of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.